I'm starving. What's for breakfast? Guten Tag! Johannes Rums! I bring you arts-enriched raisin blums, fortified with increased test scores and creative problem-solving skills. It's good! And good for you. Bobby? Susie? Don't worry! That's just the power of the arts! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Symphonic Podcast. I'm Andrew Owen, and this is our host, Bernardo Mite. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, as you can see, there's something different today in, in, our, in our video. For our video subscribers. Yeah, we're dressed differently today. <laughs> and in case you were wondering, it's because we're in Louisiana and it's like 300 degrees outside. Welcome to Louisiana. Yeah. yeah, we started this whole thing when I was teaching a class. And, you know, we'd record right after class, so mm -hmm. I'd always be in a suit. So yeah. just sort of stuck until now. It's too hot, man. Too darn hot. <laughs> Look, I'm a clean man. Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about Johannes Brahms. Ah, oh, yes, Johannes yes. Brahms. Um, his music is often typecast. Uh, you know, um, he is... Um, because the, major the majority of the orchestra repertory is usually like older than 100 years old. Um, but at their time, when they were being composed, usually the composers were like the rock stars of their time. Um, they usually struggled to appear, appear, appeal to their audiences, um, and they usually were always innovated. They always innovated. Um, but there was one that was different. Well, Johannes Brahms, I, I think he did innovate. He just innovated in a much more, yeah. quite honestly, intelligent way. Mm -hmm. He was... He was uh, uh, Harold Schoenberg uh, dubs him the keeper of the flame. He's carrying on the old German tradition of, of having good form and mm -hmm. very careful composition where every single note matters mm -hmm. in a composition. Uh, a lot of his uh, contemporaries were not that way. Uh, Wagner is the obvious example. Uh, Wagner and Brahms were diametrically opposed. One And same with Wagner and Liszt, both were, yeah. were in that camp. And Brahms was in the camp of trying to yeah, the word is conservative, but I think in the case of, of Brahms, I think it's very advanced stuff. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, uh, Schoenberg actually cites this, calling him Brahms the progressive. Mm -hmm. he, yeah. you know, it's, but in any case, Brahms is, is always hearkening back to an older style in order to create this new, much more intelligent, romantic music. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, he was quite different. He unabashedly turned to the past for his contemporary relevance. Uh, in the raging cultural war of the time, Brahms came to be regarded as the pillar of conservatism. Uh, I mean, he was, he was vaunted by the influential uh, music critic Edward Hanslick uh, as a pure musician whose work was imbued with intrinsic beauty, a rampart against the threat of Wagner and the progressives who sought to express personal thoughts and feelings in the music. Gross. <laughs> But to be fair, I think Brahms does have a lot of feelings in the music. It's just not so obvious. And yeah. It doesn't hit you over the head like, like Wagner and Liszt did. 
Uh, but yeah, the activists fought Brahms with a vengeance. Hugo Wolf condemned his art as one, of the, as, as one of composing without ideas, a trick of making something out of nothing. He's describing um, this music, that's just music for music's sake. It doesn't really represent anything. And Brahms would go, yeah, that's exactly. kind of the point. Yeah. Music should be transcending this. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to me, I mean, Brahms's music is a lot more rich and timeless than, than the music of, uh, of his contemporaries. Uh, Mendelssohn excluded. Mendelssohn sort of in the same camp mm -hmm. of looking in the back, looking in the past. Uh, so, uh, as as Leonard Bernstein noted, uh, while Wolf's remark was intended as an indictment, in fact, it is the key to Brahms's greatness, and indeed encapsulates the essence of symphonic form in which rudimentary materials are uh, developed so as to generate a universe of meaning. So, in that light, Julius Harrison sees Brahms as filling a more complex role as a bridge between past and present. If, if we're looking at things from a, a narrative perspective, if everybody is <laughs> progressing on the previous person or just doing something different. Uh, he, Brahms melts the classical architecture of the past with the soaring sound of his own era. There's just a richness to his music. Yeah. So even so, every composer fills that role, even if unintentionally, as, an innovation, as all innovation is founded upon the achievements of the past. I suppose you could call it innovation. It's just a, doing something different, right? Uh, Old earth must be tilled to grow new crops, so, says Wilhelm Furtwängler. Love German. <laughs> so in art, something fresh can be created out of something that is already established. Mm -hmm. um, Furtwängler also uh, created, created Brahms as, as a radical, uh, stating that Brahms was the first great composer who proudly stood apart from the trends of his time because they did not satisfy his needs. Uh, an artist who rose above his historic function, an individual who had to defend himself to be what he was, the creator of art that was independent of history and that was founded upon inner logic. That's so true. Oh, that's <laughs> so good. Yeah. And as John Ardois observed, uh, the challenge of Rams transcended the simplistic friction of new versus old or innovation versus tradition. Uh, he plunges us into the deeper and eternal impasse of man versus his times. We all feel pressure to conform or rebel, but Brahms just did his own thing. Uh, a thoroughly bold and modern attitude to a supposed conservative. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah, Brahms's uh, sense of history was well informed. He was one of the first great composers to also be a musicologist. I mean, uh, the field of musicology is, is relatively young, and, mm -hmm. and it was. Uh, it was fledgling around the time that it was a fledgling around the time that Brahms was alive. So Brahms himself was also a musicologist. His interests and knowledge not only embraced the folk music of his time, but extended back through Palestrina to the dawn of our musical heritage in the 16th century. I mean, Brahms was uh, for a while served as as chorus leaders, and he would bring back music of people like um, by Lassus and. Uh, composers that really hadn't been performed, performed in these mm -hmm. halls before, and, and at least in quite some time. He was interested in this old stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, a little bit of it, about his life. About his life. His life. Um, Brahms receives his first music lesson from his father, uh, Johann Jack Jacob Brahms, who played the horn and double bass. Well, he actually played a lot of more instruments than that, but he's he made a living out of playing horn and double bass. Uh, Variety show. Yeah. He studied piano from the age of seven with Otto Friedrich Wildbald Cosell. Don't you love German? Yes. <laughs> Due to the family's poverty, uh, the adolescent Brahms had to contribute to the family's income by playing the piano in dance halls. Um, early biographers found this shocking and played down this portion of his life, so they kind of skipped this one. Instead of like, you know, trying to figure out what happened there, there's not much, much information. 
Um, some other write writers have suggested that this early experience wrapped Brahms' later relations with women. Right, Brahms never married. He, mm -hmm. and, and, and yes, when we say dance halls, uh, what we really mean is, uh, you know, brothels. <laughs> places where people uh, went to do things that society frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he, he was, uh, for all that, that many of us know, uh, he, he, he played in those. We don't really have very much information about that, but... But if his main experience with women growing up was them fondling him and picking him up and playing with him, uh, probably had less of a healthy marital life. So he never got married. He yeah. fell in love a few times, but yeah. he didn't actually follow through with it. In fact, one time he broke off an engagement just because he couldn't stand the thought of having a wife. That's right. All there was to it. Poor yeah. woman. She, she was crazy about Brahms as much as he was crazy about her, but he was mm -hmm. just afraid of going home after a failed concert and having to fail again, <laughs> her judging words. But yeah, that's, that's poor Brahms' early life there playing in dance halls. So for a time, Brahms also learned uh, the cello. So he learned that beautiful romantic instrument. Uh, after his early piano lessons with Otto Kossel, Brahms studied piano with Edward Markson, uh, who was a student of a student of Mozart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and he also studied with Carl, uh, oh, no, um, yeah, Markson studied also with Carl Maria von Bachlet, who was a close friend of Schubert. Uh, so the young Brahms gave a few public concerts in Hamburg from this, uh, this music education that he was receiving on the piano. Um, but he did not become well-known as a pianist until he made a concert tour at the age of 19. Uh, this, this was a really fun tour, which we'll hear about in a second, I'm sure, when we talk about Remenyi, because uh, that was his first time leaving Hamburg and checking out this whole new strange place. Mm -hmm. So in later life, he frequently took part in the performance of his own works, whether as a soloist, accompanist, or participant in chamber music. Uh, so he, and he also conducted choirs from his very early teens and became a proficient choral and orchestral conductor. In fact, the longest job he ever held was a three-year post as a, as a choir director. <laughs> Bless yeah. his heart. Yeah. He just didn't like, a, didn't like to hold a job for very long. Yeah. That's cool. He had all the money he needed. He didn't like stability, I guess. He is, he is just happy. I mean, he made gobs of money and didn't spend it on anything but just handing it out to people randomly. <laughs> um, he began to compose quite early in his life. Uh, but later destroyed most copies of his of his first works. Uh, for instance, Louis Japa, a fellow pupil of Marxen, reported a piano sonata that Brahms had played or improvised at the age of 11, uh, which had been destroyed. Uh, his compositions did not receive public acclaim until he went on a concert tour as a companist to the Hungarian um, violinist Edward Remeni uh, in April and May of 1853. Uh, on this tour he met uh, Josef Joachim at Hanover, and went on to the court of Weimar, where he met where he met Franz Liszt, Peter Cornelius, and Joachim um, Raff. Yeah, we can never forget about old Raff. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greatest romantic composers of all time. Sure. Ever heard of him? No. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Joachim Raff. <laughs> According to several witnesses of Brahms' meeting with Liszt, at which Liszt performed uh, Brahms' Scherzo Opus 4 at sight. Remini was offended by Brahms' failure to praise Liszt's sonata in B minor, or hardly, because Ram supposedly fell asleep during the performance. He said he was tired. That's what he said after that. Yeah, <laughs> he said, "No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just tired from from all the travels." <laughs> I mean, dude, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was he was touring with Romini for a long time, and and while he was hanging out with Franz Liszt, he fell asleep. I mean, Liszt says, "Hey, come here. Uh, let me. Do you have any of your music?" And so Brahms hands him some music, and he says. Oh, let me play it. And so he sits and plays it, plays through some of his music there, the, you know, the Scherzo, Opus 4, just goes through it. And I mean, everyone loves Liszt, and, and Brahms is just there going, who is this guy? 
So they, they started not liking each other very much around that time. But Remen, I mean, Liszt was was always cordial, and so was Brahms. But Remen wasn't. <laughs> uh, Remen was was upset that Brahms didn't have uh, just as much love of Liszt. You yeah. know, Liszt was just sort of a cult figure at the time. He, he held court, and, and Brahms just wasn't the kind of guy who held court with people that that was in people's courts. Mm -hmm. He was quite self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. So uh, this this relationship with Joseph Joachim that Brahms developed uh, on this tour with Rumenyi uh, eventually led to Joachim giving Brahms a letter of recommendation, a letter of introduction to Robert Schumann. Uh, we've, I think, talked about Robert Schumann before, a great romantic composer, mm -hmm. uh, early first half of the uh, 19th century. He had a bit of a... Um, uh, horrible psychotic death near the end of his life. Yeah. But, I mean, never in 1853 or 1854, five or six, around that era. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, he, he gives uh, Robert Schumann a letter of introduction. It uh, gives Brahms uh, some means of, of talking to Mr. Schumann. Uh, and so Brahms took the train to Dusseldorf uh, and went to, the, went to the home of Robert Schumann. He got up there and knocked on the door and waited, and the door opened. <laughs> and it was one of the one of the children, and the children was and she was and she was only there. I mean, it was only the girl there, and was like, "I'm sorry, he's he's not in right now. Try again later." Okay, so okay, that was anticlimactic. So the next day, so Brahms goes up the next day, and he knocks on the door, and he sees Robert Schumann in his bathrobe, and so he he comes in. Robert welcomes him and says almost nothing and, and seats him at the piano and says, play for me. And so he plays. He plays for about two hours just sitting there, all of his, just everything that Brahms had under his fingers. And near the beginning of that, Robert Schumann had called Clara down upstairs from upstairs. Hey, sure. Clara, you need to check sure. this out. Uh, comes down, watches Brahms play. Uh, and they say nothing to Brahms, really, uh, other than Brahm, I mean, Robert Schumann just stoo stoops down to Brahms and says, you and I understand each other. And that's all he says. Brahms thought he had failed miserably because he left without them having said very much all, at all about that. Uh, Clower wrote a really long entry in a journal about that day, but, but Robert uh, wrote, just wrote, uh, Met Brahms, a genius. So, I mean, in any case, the next day, uh, Clara Schumann found Brahms in a bar because he, he didn't come back. He thought he had failed and picked him up. And, and, and they developed a nice long relationship, uh, Clara, Robert, and, and Johannes Brahms. Mm -hmm. uh, so Schumann, amazed by this 20-year-old's talent, again, he's 20 years old. He's seven years younger than I am, mm -hmm. uh, published an art. Uh, Schumann uh, went back to his old newspaper called uh, The Neue Zeitschrift für Musik. Uh, the little music criticism journal that he had started a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wrote an article called Neue Bahnen, New Paths, which described, uh, in the 28th of October, 1853, describes this young man, who he claimed to be, quote, destined to give ideal expression to the times, unquote. Uh, this pronouncement impressed people who were admirers of Robert and Clara Schumann. For example, in Hamburg, a music publisher and the conductor of the Philharmonic uh, but it was received by with some skepticism by others. I mean, this this gave some degree of of, uh, of fear to poor Brahms. He, the expectation was that if he wrote a symphony, it would be Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. Yeah. In fact, that's what Symphony Number no. One is often called. Yeah. <laughs> Beethoven's Tenth. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's this expectation that Brahms is going to be the next mm -hmm. master, Beethoven. master, yeah. the next uh, Mozart, Beethoven, all those people. No pressure. No pressure, dude. So he was terrified. I mean, yeah. moderately terrified. So he didn't write a symphony for a very long time. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, 
so he wrote to Robert, revered master. Uh, he, he wrote that his praise, uh, quote, will arouse such extraordinary expectations by the public that I don't know how I can begin to fulfill them, unquote. So while he was in Dusseldorf, Brahms participated with Schumann and Albert Dietrich in writing a sonata for Joachim. This is known as the FAE Sonata, Free But Lonely, Frei Aber Einsam. You know, that's uh, yet another mm -hmm. uh, statement of Brahms' own... Uh, his, his lack of desire to be with another. And this, this happens. And, you know, it's just good to be single. Uh, if, in the New Testament, Paul says, it's a gift to be single, right? <laughs> uh, gift to be married, gift to be single. Uh, so Schumann's wife, the composer and uh, pianist Clara, wrote in her diary about her first visit of, uh, with Brahms. Uh, said, uh, this is that long entry I was mentioning earlier, quote, it, Brahms is one of those who comes as if straight from God. He played a sonata, scherzos, etc., of his own. Uh, all of them showing exuberant imagination, depth of feeling, and mastery of form. What he played to us is so masterly that one cannot think uh, that the good God sent him to the world ready-made. One cannot but think this. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has a great future before him, for he will first find the true field for his genius when he begins to write for the orchestra. Which he does at some point. Yeah. I mean, he's sitting there, all she's heard is piano music, and that's really all he's really composed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this, this guy had a really interesting... Uh, starting out life here in Dusseldorf and meeting the Schumanns and all these interesting folks. Yeah, but can we, can you imagine everybody telling you that you're the next Beethoven? And I mean, that's poor, poor Brahms. I mean, I, I, the I, pressure I, on him was just incredible. I'd become a baker. Yeah. I mean, it'd be over. That's just too much pressure. I mean, I think he, he, um, he, he delivered, but it wasn't, I mean, that's why it took him 20 years. Poor guy. So, after Robert Schumann's attempted suicide and uh, subsequent confinement in a mental in a mental sanatorium, like we like we um, said before, Cupid's um, disease they called mm -hmm. it my day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he was in the oh, mental really? sanatorium in uh, near Bonn in 1854. Claire was in despair, expecting the Schumann's eighth child. Uh, Brahms hurried to Düsseldorf. Uh, he and, and Joachim Dietrich and Julius Otto Grimm visited Clara often in in uh, in that year. Uh, to divert her mind from Robert's tragedy by playing music for or with her. Clara wrote in her, in her diary that good Brahms always shows himself a most sympathetic friend. He does not say much, but one can see in his face how he grieves with me for the loved one whom he so highly reveres. Besides, he is so kind in seizing every opportunity of cheering me by means of anything musical. Um, from so young a man, I cannot but be doubly conscious of the sacrifice. For a sacrifice, it certainly is for anyone to be with me now. Yeah, romanticism's great because you have these great Do, <laughs> journal yeah. entries where you really get into people's minds that you yeah. couldn't get into before. Mm -hmm. uh, people are just a lot more expressive about these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, um, so later to help Clara and her many children, Roms lodged above the, the Schumann apartment in a three-story house, mm -hmm. uh, setting his musical career aside temporarily so he could be of support. You know, he helped Clara raise the kids and, and do all the things around the house. So Clara was not allowed to visit Robert at all while he was institutionalized. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, he wouldn't have recognized her anyway. Yeah. I mean, the, she was allowed to visit him two days before his death, and at the time, uh, Robert didn't know who she was. I mean, yeah. it was pretty bad. So, uh, but in any case, Brahms was able to visit him several times and could act as a go-between between Clara and, and Robert. Mm -hmm. uh, the Schumanns employed a housekeeper, Bertha, Bertha, in Dusseldorf, mm -hmm. uh, later Elizabeth Werner in Berlin. 
Berlin, uh, there was also a hired cook in Berlin, Josephine. When the Schumann's oldest child and daughter, Marie, born in 1841, was of age, she took over as the housekeeper when needed, would cook. Um, Clara was often away on concert tours, some lasting months or sometimes in the summer for, uh, for cures. And in 1854-1856, uh, Brahms also was away part of the time, leaving the staff to manage the household. In any case, Brahms is very much involved in the life of, of, these, of this family. He's just, he sort of got plugged in and, yeah. and found, found some uh, fulfillment in helping yeah. them out. He was their roommate. He was, he was a helper. I think that was a lot of his, yeah. his personality was just uh, mm -hmm. like zero ego. Mm -hmm. That's the fun thing about Brahms. He, he, was, uh, he didn't have low self-esteem. He had no self-esteem. He, no, he did not care what others thought of him. That's why he dressed so badly and just didn't spend money on much. Mm -hmm. Foul-weathered friend. He'll insult you to your face, but defend you to the death behind your back. Awesome. <laughs> so in a, in a concert in Leipzig in October of 1854, Clara played the Andante in Excurso from Brahms' Sonata in F minor, opus 5. Um, supposedly the first time his music was played in public. Um, Brahms and Clara had a very close and lifelong but unusual relationship. They had great affection but also respect for one another. Brahms urged in 1887 that all his and Clara's letters to each other should be destroyed. Actually, Clara kept quite a number of letters Brahms had sent her at Marie's urging, um, refrained um, from destroying many of the letters Brahms had returned. Eventually, um, correspondence between Clara and Brahms in German was published. Uh, some of Brahms' earliest letters to Clara show him deeply in love with her. Clara's uh, preserved letters to Brahms, except for one, begin much later, in 1858. And also selected letters from e excerpts from them, uh, some to or from Brahms, uh, and diary entries of Clara have been translated into English. The earliest excerpt and translated letter from Brahms to Clara was in October of 1854. Hence, cautions that the preserved correspondence might, might have passed through Clara's censorship. Well, it's impossible to know their relationship. Yeah. It matters not that much, but it, I think it's good to, um, it's good to always remember that, um, well, I mean, yeah, he, he did ask for those letters to be destroyed, but he also asked all of his friends to destroy the letters between him and her, and between him and, and whoever he was corresponding with, because he wanted. Uh, he was a musicologist. He knew that. Yeah, people would go through them. People would scrutinize yeah. him, his life. Yeah. Like he wanted his his life to live in his works, which is fine. <laughs> uh, his relationship with Clara has always been a fun talking point for a lot of people because it is professed yeah. just pure affection for a person of the opposite gender, mm -hmm. and um, and so he's. Uh, so everyone often asserts that yeah. many people assert that they they must have they must have fooled around yeah, must have sure. done something bad but you know you can't assume that yeah I mean hell he always called her Mama Schumann I mean that's uh, <laughs> that's how they how he referred to her lovingly uh, but they they maintained their friendship until uh, one of them died mm -hmm. it was um, it was a nice long relationship that was not uh, terribly stunted with guilt it seems, just seems to be pretty pretty pleasant. In any case, Brahms felt a strong conflict between the love of Clara and the respect for uh, Robert. Uh, this, you know, le this led him to allude at one point to suicidal thoughts. I mean, it's hard to be in love with somebody that's married to your best friend. So, uh, not long after Robert died, Brahms decided that he had to break away from the Schumann household. So he took leave rather brusquely, leaving uh, Clara feeling hurt, but Brahms and Clara kept up correspondence, mm -hmm. like I said, until near the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, Brahms joined Clara and some of her children for some summer sojourns on occasion, but uh, but yeah, in 1862, Clara bought a house in Lichtental, then 
uh, adjoining since uh, then adjoining since 1909, included in Baden-Baden, uh, and, and lived there with her remaining family uh, from 1863 to 1873. Uh, so Brahms, from 1865 to 1874, spent several summers living in an apartment uh, nearby a house which is now a museum, the, the Brahms House, uh, which, uh, I don't know if you know German, means the Brahms, the Brahms House. Brahms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Brahms appears in later years as a rather avuncular figure in uh, Eugenie Schumann's account. Um, uh, Clara and um, Brahms took a concert tour together in, in 1868 in Vienna, then in early 69 to England, then Holland. The tour ended in April of 69. Uh, after Clara moved from Lichtental to Berlin in 1873, the two saw each other less often, as Brahms had his home in Vienna since uh, 63. So he's one of our great Viennese composers mm -hmm. ever since he moved there mm -hmm. later in life. And of course, um, you know, Everybody who moves to Vienna has to has to reckon with the father. I mean, Mozart had to do that in Salzburg, but yeah. but you know his uh, Johann Jakob Brahms was really uh, really sad that Johannes was leaving and going to some strange land away from from his home. So he said. So Brahms sent him a letter saying, "Well, Dad, I want you to uh, do what I do whenever I'm in some in a stressful situation like that." And I, I pull up an, an old copy I have of. Of uh, Handel's Saul, and I think if you do that, you will find similar solace. And so he goes over to the book and uh, in, in Brahms's, you know, in, in the house library, and then finds the the score just stuffed with cash. <laughs> just to you know, just let Daddy know it's it's all good. It's all okay. <laughs> <laughs> just take some money, be happy. But yeah, no, uh, but yeah so so Brahms uh, started living there in Vienna in '63. Mm -hmm. um, Clara was 14 years older than Brahms. Um, in a letter to her from May of 1856, two and a half uh, years after meeting her, and after two years either together or corresponding, Brahms wrote that he continued to call her the German polite from uh, Z, uh, which is which is formal of you, um, and hesitated to use the familiar form do. It's kind of like always saying, you know, you like like Bernardo and I are very good friends, and Bernardo is a doctor, and I could say Doctor Mite every time I address him. Yeah. Um, but I'm quite comfortable saying Bernardo. It's the yeah, same thing in German, yeah. between Z and Du. Mm -hmm. Like, he continues to call her basically, other than obviously Mama Clara, but, but also, yeah. you know, yeah, when, Z, not you. Yeah, when they began, it was a little formality. Um, so, Clara finally agreed uh, that they call one another the, the regular, the informal Du. Uh, writing in her diary, I could not refuse, for indeed I love him like a son. Then Brahms wrote on, on that same year, uh, I wish I could write to you as tenderly as I love you and do as many good things for you as you would like. Well, who doesn't write that for their bro, right? <laughs> yeah. You are so infinitely dear to me that I can hardly express it. I should like to call you darling and lots of other names without ever getting enough of adoring you. It's so sweet too. And it doesn't have to be like possessive yeah. love we're talking about here. It's just... Yeah being affectionate. Mm -hmm. The rest of that letter and most um, later preserved letters are about music and musical people, updating one another about their travels and experiences. Brahms much valued Clara's opinions as a composer. There, there wasn't a composition of Brahms that was not shown to Clara the, the, uh, the moment it was in shape to be communicated. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so she remained his faithfully devoted advisor and throughout all of uh, his, his life. Every piece that he wrote just about saw and went under her eyes before it went out to the public. Mm -hmm. So in a letter to Joachim in 59, three years after Robert's death, uh, Brahms wrote about Clara, quote, 
I believe that I do not respect and admire her so much as I love her and am under her spell. Often I must forcibly restrain myself from just quietly putting my arms around her and even, I don't know, it seems so natural that she would not take it ill. Look, I mean, everybody's that way. I mean, with, with just anybody, right? Sure. <laughs> okay, so they... They might have been really affectionate. Yeah. But nothing weird, right? <laughs> yeah. Clearly he was battling it. He was definitely battling for sure. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, so, Bram's never married, like we said before. Uh, despite strong feelings for several women, and despite entering into an engagement, like we said. Uh, but of course, it was broken off. Uh, the lady in question was Agatha von Siebold. Poor um, Agatha. Yeah. She was from Go Göttingen, um, which, and this happened in 1859. It seems that Brahms was rather indiscreet about the relationship while it lasted, which uh, troubled his friends. After breaking off the engagement, Brahms wrote to Agatha, I love you, I must see you again, but I am incapable of bearing uh, feathers. Yeah, shackles. Mm -hmm. yeah. Please, please write me uh, whether I might come again to clasp you in my arms, to kiss you, and tell you that I love you, but never saw one another again. Just good old-fashioned affection that just had to end. Because yeah. he couldn't bear the thought of being with her forever. <laughs> it's just one of those really public, like, I love you. Everybody, look how much I love this lady. I promise I'm not gay. Of course, you know, <laughs> it was sort of a, you know, you know Brahms couldn't grow a beard yet, so that was sort of his beard. <laughs> no, he was, uh, no, he, he was perfectly straight. But there was a... Yeah. Uh, Unlike Tchaikovsky. Well, yeah. Tchaikovsky didn't have quite the same kinds of affections for Agatha, for people like Agatha von Siebold. <laughs> but he did get married. Unlike Brahms, kind Tchaikovsky got married. For, for not that love, but he did. <laughs> I mean, Brahms was f just filled with all these romantic emotions, but still tempering it with a good German logic and mentality that kept everything in check. Mm -hmm. So after Robert Schumann's death at the sanatorium in 1856, Brahms divided his time between Hamburg, where he formed and conducted a ladies' choir, uh, and Detmold in the Principality of Lippe, where he was a court music teacher and conductor. He was a soloist at the premiere of his Piano Concerto No. 1, his first orchestral composition to be performed publicly, in 1859. He first visited Vienna in 1862, staying there over the winter, and in 63 was appointed conductor of the Vienna Sing Academy. Uh, though he resigned the position the following year and entertained the idea of taking up conducting posts elsewhere, he based himself increasingly in Vienna and soon made it his home there. It's just a nice place to be if you're a musician. Everybody, sure. can, everybody that you know can play an instrument. And, yeah. You know, if, if you're short of a second violin player in your orchestra, you just go out in the street to perform, pull one in, right? I mean, everybody's <laughs> performing. Now, it's a great place to, you know, I mean, if you ever live in a big city, you get that vibe, and it becomes harder to go back home. Mm -hmm. So from 1872 to 75, he was director of the concerts of the Vienna Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde, or the, um, the Society of the Friends of Music. Uh, afterwards, he accepted no formal position. He declined an honorary doctorate of music from the University of Cambridge in 1877, but accepted one from the University of Breslau, a good, good German man, in 1879, and composed the Academic Festival Overture as a gesture of appreciation. That's a great piece, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he had been composing steadily throughout the 1850s and, and 60s, uh, but his music had evoked, uh, had evoked divided critical responses. From the first piano concerto had uh, been badly received in some of its early performances. Uh, his works were labeled old-fashioned by the New German School, uh, whose principal figures include, include Liszt and Wagner, and Berlioz, of course. Uh, Brands admired some of Wagner's uh, music and admired Liszt as a great pianist, but the conflict between the two schools, known as the War of the Romantics, <laughs> uh, soon embroiled all of musical Europe. In the 
in the brand in the Brahms camp were his close friends Clara Schumann, Joachim, uh, the influential music critic Edward Hanslick, and the leading Viennese surgeon. Uh, Theodore Bill, Bill wrote. That's pretty sad if you have to invite a surgeon. A surgeon to be <laughs> Like, look, we, we don't have very many composers, but this surgeon's a really cool guy. <laughs> He's with me. Uh, <laughs> in 1860, uh, Brahms attempted to organize a public, public uh, protest against some of the uh, wilder ex excesses of the Wagnerians, of the Wagnerians' music. Uh, this took the form of a manifesto written by Brahms and Joachim jointly. The manifesto, which was published uh, prematurely with only three supporting signatures, was a failure. <laughs> and he never engaged in public polemics again. <laughs> I mean, that reminds me of... Uh, uh, so, so there's a website. Uh, uh, I make no stance here on, on creationism, but there's a... There's a okay, so someone designed a list of, of, of really famous... Of, of all the scientists that they could find who believe in creationism as the beginning of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, in response, someone designed a list of all of those who do not, uh, who believe instead in, in evolution mm -hmm. and in all that stuff, um, whose name is Stephen with a PH. <laughs> it was so much longer. This is exactly what happened with this manifesto. You just, it was just more popular at the time to be like, uh, like the other guys, the, the, the war of I mean, the, um, the romantics who were trying to let music represent things that aren't music. Or Brahms is just trying to let music be timeless. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a beautiful thing. I don't know, there's, it's always fun to watch the, the politics and the, the, yeah. the polemics of the public life. And part of why Brahms was not fond of public life. So it was the premiere of A German Requiem, uh, which was his largest choral work in, in Bremen in 1868, that confirmed Brahms's European reputation and led many to accept that he had conquered Beethoven in the symphony. Beethoven needed some conquering, man. <laughs> ah, so irritable. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. Now, this may have given him the confidence finally to complete a number of works that he had wrestled with over many years including his Cantata Rinaldo, his first string quartet, third piano uh, quartet, and most notably his first symphony. This appeared in 1876, though it had begun, and the ver a version of the first movement seen by some of his friends in the early 1860s. The, the other three symphonies then followed in 77, 83, and 85, like they take a while to compose or something. Yeah, he, so he, he took so long for the first one, and then he was like, oh, it's fine, everybody likes me, or everybody liked the first one, so boom, 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 he, he did the, the other ones. I mean, boom, 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 77, 83, 85. Well, but, what, I mean, a lot less than, <laughs> less time than the first one. I mean, sure, but you look at, you know, Vivaldi, he can pop out a... Yeah. Pop out a concerto and a hot drop of a hat, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> We have to imbue it with all this logic and beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, so from 1881, he was able to try out his new orchestral works with the Meiningen Court Orchestra of the Duke of Meiningen, whose conductor was Hans von Bülow, another one of Brahms' dearest friends. Uh, Bülow was uh, the guy that coined the term the three Bs, Bach, Beethoven, and the third one is Brahms. Mm -hmm. That's how much Bülow loved the guy. Of course, Bülow had a different reason for being opposed to the school of, of Wagner and Liszt because his wife uh, had a long and horribly emotional affair with Richard Wagner. Um, his wife was the daughter of Franz Liszt, Cosimo. By the way, everybody is related. It's basically the <laughs> Deep South here in... Uh, <laughs> so Brahms himself was the soloist at the premiere of his piano concerto number no. two in 1881 in Pest. Mm -hmm. um, Brahms frequently traveled both for business uh, or concerts and, and for pleasure. Uh, from 1878 onwards, he often visited Italy in the springtime, and he usually sought out a pleasant rural location in which to compose during the summer. 
He was a great walker and especially enjoyed, enjoyed spending time in the open air, uh, where he felt that he could think more clearly. In 1889, one um, Theo Wagenmann, a representative of American inventor Thomas Edison, uh, visited the composer in Vienna and invited him to make an experimental recording. Brown's played an abbreviated version of his first Hungarian dance on the piano. The recording was later issued on an LP of early piano performances um, compiled by Gregor Benko. Although the spoken introduction to the short piece of music is quite clear, the piano playing is largely inaudible due to heavy surface noise. Oh, let's play it for this. Oh, of course, it's going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, this remains the earliest recording made by a major composer. Analysts and scholars remain divided, however, as to whether the voice that introduces the piece is that of uh, Wagenmann or of Brahms. Several attempts have been made to improve the quality of this historic recording, uh, the noised version was produced at Stanford University, which claims to solve the mystery. Solve it? Who is it? <laughs> In 1889, uh, um, Brahms was named an honorary, honorary citizen of Hamburg until 1948. Uh, until 1948, the only one born in Hamburg. Um, so <laughs> That's right. So, so he was an honorary citizen of Hamburg who was actually born, born there. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only one, the only one born until 1948. But yeah, we're going to play the... the the recording of So yeah, so on to his later years. Uh, in 1890, the 57-year-old Brahms, oh, 57, old as dirt, um, <laughs> uh, resolved to give up composing. No more composing. However, as it turned out, he was unable to abide by his decision, and in the years before his death, he produced a number of acknowledged masterpieces, whoopsie-daisy. Uh, his admiration for Richard Mühlfeld, a uh, clarinetist with the mining and orchestra, uh, moved him to compose the clarinet trio, opus 114. <laughs> so many pieces. And the clarinet quintet, opus 115. <laughs> That's only getting higher, guys. Uh, and the two clarinet sonatas, opus 120, he also wrote several cycles of piano pieces, uh, including uh, the Fia Ernste Gesänge, four serious songs. None of those don't include those, but you know. Uh, in addition, the Fie Ernste Gesänge, uh, Opus 121, and the 11 Chorale Preludes for Organ, Opus 122. So while composing the, while completing the Opus 121 songs, uh, the, um, the Fie Ernste Gesänge, uh, four serious songs, uh, Brahms developed cancer. Uh, sources differ on whether this was liver or pancreas. Uh, I think he was diagnosed with jaundice, and then he died of cancer. Hmm. Uh, his, his last appearance in public was on the 3rd of March in 1897 when he saw Hans Richter conduct his Symphony No. 4. There was an ovation after each of the four movements. Remember, folks, applaud between movements. Let's get this whole thing <laughs> oh, yeah. done. Yeah. I'm so tired of waiting to <laughs> applaud. Big hammer is like, da, 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 
Silence, a couple page turns, and a cough. It's the most annoying thing. People, just applaud between movements. I don't care what the conductor tells you to do. I agree. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> but yeah, um... <clears throat> Anyways, uh, in any case, his, his, I mean, this, and that was actually quite common, too. I mean, just the clapping, but they actually ovated. They stood, yeah. uh, which back in those days actually meant a lot of, I mean, that, that meant something. Today we yeah, stand up. When, any, we just stand up because, just because we think applauding is just perfunctory. When we stand, that means that we want to applaud. <laughs> uh, and back in those days, you applaud, and that means that I was so moved that I could not stay seated when I applaud. It's like you had to be seriously moved. Not today, but, you know. We, we could go back to that. It's just people look like, like butts when they sit down and everyone else is standing up. Uh, in any case, uh, his condition gradually worsened and he died a month later on the 3rd of April in 1897 at the age, ripe old age of 63, only about 10 years after he was, was able to start growing a beard. <laughs> so Brahms is buried in Zentralfriedhof in Vienna under a monument by Victor Horta and the sculptor Ilse von Svartovsky Konrad. Um, so we're going to talk about his first symphony. Uh, Yay! Yep. Beethoven's turn. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Brands began composing a D minor symphony in 1854, but this work underwent radical change before much of it was finally recast as his first piano concerto, also in D minor. Uh, the demise of the D minor symphony and long gestation of the C minor symphony, which would eventually be his first, um, may be attributed to two factors. First, Brahms' self-critical fastidiousness led him to destroy many of his early works, like we talked about before. Uh, second, uh, there was an expectation from Brahms' friends and the public that he would continue Beethoven's uh, inheritance and produce a symphony of com commensurate dignity and intellectual scope, uh, an expectation that Brahms felt he could not fulfill easily in, in view of the monumental reputation of Beethoven. And to be fair, I mean, those, those first pieces couldn't have been that good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Brahms, pretty smart guy. Pretty smart guy. He's not going to throw away something that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was probably um, 1868 when Brahms finally realized uh, what would become the final structure of his first symphony. In September of that year, he sent a card to Clara Schumann uh, sketching the um, Alphorn tune which would emerge in the symphony's finale, uh, along with the famous message, Thus blew the shepherd's horn today. Uh, despite the evidence of the work's development, the work would not premiere for eight more years in 1876. Mm. Yeah, in 1855, he wrote to his friend, the violinist, Joseph Joachim, whom we've talked about a couple times now. We actually have recordings of Joachim playing violin, it's kind of fun. Yes. So you can actually hear what Brahms heard. <laughs> I have been trying my hand at a symphony during the past summer, have even orchestrated the first movement, and have completed the second and third, unquote. Uh, the music of which he was speaking was indeed brought to completion, but not in its originally intended form. Dissatisfied with his unfinished symphony, Brahms recast the material into a sonata for two pianos. But destiny had yet other uses for this symphonically conceived music, and the sonata's first two movements came to occupy those same positions in the dramatic first piano concerto. Still in D minor, although the last movement found quite a different home as the Behold All Flesh section of the German Requiem. Mm -hmm. The strength of Brahms' symphonic convictions is everywhere apparent, and his instinct for the scope and power of the form directly descend from Beethoven, whose fifth symphony rhythm uh, Brahms was not loath to invoke repeatedly. The entire first movement is keenly dramatic, nowhere more so than in the extended, slowly building passage leading to the recapitulation. Here, Brahms' sense of dynamic expansion is definitive. Um, this is as grand a symphonic movement as ever he conceived. Yeah, I mean, the staunchly conservative Edward Hanslick recognized um, 
this the value and importance of what Brahms was doing here. Uh, the conductor, uh, Hans von Bülow, whom we talked about earlier as being the, the poor, cuckolded husband of Cosima Liszt, Wagner, Bülow, Liszt, Wagner, uh, was moved in 1877 to call the symphony Beethoven's Tenth. Mm -hmm. Again, that's just a term we all use today that, that talk about the symphony because Bülow is really good at coining things. <laughs> uh, during, uh, due to perceived similarities, this, this is called this, due to perceived similarities between the work and various compositions of Beethoven. It's often remarked that there is a strong resemblance between the main theme of the finale of Brahms' first symphony and the main theme of the finale of Beethoven's ninth symphony. Also, Brahms uses the rhythm of the fate motive from the opening of Beethoven's fifth symphony. This rather annoyed Brahms. He felt that this amounted to accusations of plagiarism, whereas he saw the use of Beethoven's idiom in the symphony as an act of conscious homage. Mm -hmm. uh, Brahms himself said, when comment was made of the similarity with Beethoven, <laughs> any ass can see that, <laughs> unquote. Yeah. Oh, seriously, he said those words. In German, you know, whatever the German word is for ass. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, uh, this work is still sometimes, though rarely, referred to as Beethoven's Tenth. However, Brahms's horn theme with the fate rhythm was noted in a letter to Clara Schumann overheard in Alphorn's playing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's where he originally apparently heard it. Yeah. Um, Fritz Simrock, uh, Brahms's friend and publisher, did not receive the score until after the work had been performed in three cities. Uh, and Bram still wished, <laughs> wished trail performances in at least three more. Uh, the manuscript of the first movement apparently does not survive, uh, yet the remainder has been reproduced in miniature facsimile by Dover Publications. Uh, the autograph manuscript of the second, third, and fourth movement is held by the Morgan Library and Museum. And it's so cool that, that Fritz Zimrock was not one of the people that Brahms told to get rid of all the letters. So we have wonderful correspondence between, between him and, and Zimrock mm -hmm. that just goes into vivid detail about the process of, of you know, getting these pieces out. Really wonderful um, snapshot. So this work took a while to compose. Uh, Brahms himself declared that the symphony, from sketches to finishing touches, took 21 years, which, again, is uh, old enough to drink, yeah. uh, from 1855 to 1876. Uh, the premiere of this symphony conducted by the was conducted by the composer's friend Felix Otto Dezov. It occurred on November 4, 1876, in Karlsruhe, then in the Grand Duchy of Baden. A typical performance lasts from 45 to 50 minutes in length. Mm -hmm. The symphony scored for two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, contrabassoon, four horns, two trumpets, three trombones, timpani, violin, solo, uh, first and second violins, violas, cellos, and double bass. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's pretty just your standard uh, yeah. romantic orchestra. Yeah, um, and of course the symphony is in, in the traditional four movement structure. Uh, the first the first movement is of course in sonata form with an extended introduction. Yeah, the, sim the symphony begins with a broad introduction, where the three key elements uh, are heard simultaneously: the low drumming, the rising figure in the strings, and the falling figure in the winds. This introduction was constructed after the remainder of the piece had been scored. The Allegro section of the movement is a large orchestral sonata wherein musical ideas are stated, developed, and restated with altered relationships among them. Yeah. Very much like every other yeah. uh, sonata. <laughs> which we talked about sonata form in which episode? Do you remember? We, we talked about it um, at some point. I know, it was one. The important thing to know about sonata form is it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Perfect. <laughs> what more do you need to know, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, the beginning and the end sound the same. Well, and this one, before the, the beginning, this has an introduction. This, this, and yes. that's not uncommon, of course. Right, right. Especially in, by the time Beethoven rolls around, is yeah. when we start seeing introductions mm -hmm. at the start of these things. Yeah. So, 
unique among Brahms symphonies, the first moment is ushered in a, a formal introduction. After a processional opening section featuring um, chaotic syn syncopated rhythms uh, underpin underpinned by pulsating timpani, the woodwinds and pizzicato strings play with thematic phrases to be fully explored in the following exposition. Um, a short and stormy return to the original development, this time in the dominant of G and supported by rolling timpani, is finally followed by a further mel melodic introduction sung by oboe, flute and violas before resolving in a drawn-out transitional passage, passage ending with a plucked G note in the cello. So that's just the introduction. Yeah, that's just the introduction. That's all. That's, I mean, we could end the piece there, honestly. <laughs> all right, guys, it was great. Uh, glad you went. I'm kidding. So, um, all right, to the exposition. The exposition begins abruptly because, I don't know if you know this about Brahms, this is an abrupt guy. Sure. That's actually, there's no correlation there. He just wrote it that way. So he, uh, this, this abrupt exposition echoes the introduction's plucked final chord, final note with an orchestral exclamation, followed by a short motto, which leads to the main theme, which is initially sung stridently by the violins, who, why everybody knows violins to be magnificent singers. Uh, <laughs> the overall mood is savagely energetic, and scherzo-like in 6-8 time. As the responsibility for the main theme shifts from the violins to the woodwinds, the strings and timpani begin to sound out a da-da-da-dum rhythm, which <laughs> is strongly reminiscent of the fate rhythm of Beethoven's Symphony No. 5, which, if you know Morse code, is, is a letter V. Really? Yeah, for victory. Yeah. For five, I guess, as well. Yeah, that's good. Beethoven's fifth. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, if you keep making fun of every single instrument in every episode, we're not going to have any, any listeners by... Oh, they, you know they like it. Oh, of course. <laughs> we do make fun of everybody. <laughs> well, violins are wonderful instruments. They're just a little screechy. Uh, <laughs> they're fine. They're really expressive things, especially when they're all doing it at the same time. Sure. So, uh, we're still in the exposition. An extended transition leads to the arrival of the key of E-flat major, which in turn introduces the uh, flowing and heart-easing second theme. Uh, this theme, which is related to the motto uh, of, uh, used to open the movement, is carried out in the winds, uh, led by the oboe and clarinet with um, su support from the bassoon and eventually the French horns. That's, that's just common. I mean, the second theme with the woodwinds, that's pretty common. Uh, strong inter intervention from the violas ends with ends this peaceful passage with a descending minor key sequence, which opens to a new closing theme leading up to the final bombastic passage, wrapping up the exposition. Uh, the score then calls for a full repeat, which requires an abrupt return to C minor. Now on to the least interesting part, kidding us. <laughs> The development's always a fun part. So, yeah. we, as we uh, have talked about in a prior podcast, uh, a sonata has an exposition, a development, and a recap. Development's where all the, the action and all the fun stuff happens. Yeah. So, the action in the development section begins with a full step descent into B major, and instability ensues as interplay between the fate motive and phrases from the original theme are played off each other. <coughs> A series of modulations, each seeming to lead further away from the tonic, eventually leads the path back to the recapitulation. Uh, starting with a murky rumble in the basses, the music gathers strength with a thrilling set of arpeggios in the violins with support from the brass, with, which repeat the fate motive with great alacrity. Finally, a shocking digression in the bass line leads to a modulation to F-sharp, setting the stage for the recapitulation. Mm -hmm. Now, what I've just described is most development sections. Error. Don't let this freak you out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, uh, this is actually... Brahms is not trying to do anything particularly innovative. Yeah. The beauty is actually just in the music itself. Mm -hmm. It's not an innovation. Yeah. Uh, so, on to the recapitulation <coughs> and coda. Um, 
A somewhat nebulous start to the recapitulation is followed by a, a foreshortened restatement of the first, first theme, uh, allowing the music to proceed in the tonic, rather than taking up the tonal progression originally uh, followed in the exposition. Um, the coda begins with pizzicato strings, uh, which uh, quickly uh, decrescendo, leading to a set of modulations played out in the strings with the, their bows, leading to the closing cadence. Uh, the movement ends peacefully in C major. <laughs> the second and third movement are lighter in tone and tension than the first and last movement. The slow movement, the andante sostenuto, exhibits a gentle lyricism through three sections, the third of which is a new statement of the themes from the first. The long violin solo is reminiscent of some of Beethoven's later works, um, especially the late quartets and the Misa Solemnis. The third, scarce-like movement, has an easy spirit, yet is full of complex rhythms and interwoven textures. Oh yeah, so the second movement, uh, the Andante Sostenuto, offers a gentle relief from the highly focused dark power of the first movement. The strings and winds carry on an extended dialogue before a tempestuous minor interlude recalls the opening movement. Eventually, the gentle mood of the opening returns, and a gorgeous lyrical duet between the violin and horn conclude the movement. concludes the movement. Yeah, it's, it's just a peaceful, relaxing... You know, something, some something for the simple. massage parlor, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the third movement is, is in traditional ternary form, ABA. Um, it is composed um, of the Allegretto and contra Contrasting Trio section, uh, followed by a reprise of the Allegretto material and coda. A notable aspect of this movement is Bram's careful attention to symmetry. The form could be described as A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, A. Trio? A B A coda. Well, it's symmetrical-ish. Yeah. So perfect, but A B A B C D C D A trio A B A mm -hmm. coda. So the allegretto is in the key of A flat major and begins with a calm stepwise melody in the clarinet. The four-bar figure is extended to an irregular five bars through this through a small bridge between the phrases by the strings. The clarinet rounds off the A theme in the allegretto with an inversion of the first five bars heard. Mm -hmm. The B theme enters in measure 11 and features a descending dotted eighth pattern in the flute, clarinet and bassoon, with the strings echoing the rhythm in rising and falling figures. After eight measures, A appears with the violins uh, iterating the first theme and a longer chromatic bridge section that extends the phrase structure to seven bars. B is presented with an extension into C. Yeah, so the C and D themes differ from the first two in that they are shorter and more angular rhythmically. Um, Another geometrical metaphor there. Uh, the A and B themes feature an almost constant eighth note pizzicato in the strings, whereas C and D are more complex with an interlocking sixteenth note pattern accompanying the winds. The mo uh, movement uh, from the major mode to F minor also marks these sections apart from the preceding material. The obvious con uh, contrast in character and mood can lend one to think can uh, lead one to think that the C and D sections are a sort of a trio within the first allegretto section and the larger ternary form displayed by the movement as a whole. So the symmetry within one section reflects the symmetry of the whole, very organic in that respect, mm -hmm. uh, like a cell <coughs> mm -hmm. splitting off. So uh, A double prime closes off the first major section with the clarinet stating the first theme, much as it did in the beginning, finishing with the transition to the trio. Mm -hmm. The trio offers a change of key as well as, a, as, a, as well as the change of time. The key moves to B major, 
and enharmonic minor third away from A flat. This key movement balances with the C and D sections in F minor. Also, a minor third away from the home key, but in the opposite direction. The time signature changes from a steadily 2-4 uh, to a more pastoral and dense like 6-8. The flute, oboe and bassoon introduce a joy joyful melody in stepwise motion uh, as in the A theme. Uh, the strings add uh, a downward three note arpeggio. Um, these two motifs uh, make up the bulk of the trio material. Restatement and development of those themes ensue until the brass and winds join together for a final repeat of the melody. The second ending brings the orchestra back into 2 4 time and to the theme A. A triple prime. So <laughs> the different, the major difference between A triple, A triple prime and the earlier iterations of A, such as A and A prime and A double prime, uh, is the lingering effect of the trio upon the movement. The monotone call from the opening of the trio melody appears over the clarinet melody in the flute, oboe, and bassoon. The rhythmic effect of triplets also invades the pure eighth note world of the A theme, producing polyrhythms. Uh, old friend from school, polyrhythms. Uh, instead of the inversion of the theme we expect in the second phrase of A, the strings take over and offer an entirely different melody, but with essentially the same contour as the inversion. B double prime occupies a significantly larger space of the reprise, reprise <laughs> than it did in the previous allegretto. It leads uh, through an extended transition into the last quiet statement of A in unison by the strings. Strings of dotted eighth notes end the movement proper with ideas from the B theme. Mm -hmm. And the coda. The entry to the coda is marked poco a poco più tran tranquilo, uh, which is Tranquilos getting there, like slowly, more slowly getting slowly to Tranquilos. Slowly more peaceful. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and uh, the movement ends with the gentle throbbing of triplets <laughs> quoted from the trio section. The final few bars end somewhat abruptly with the downward arpeggio of the strings in the trio, uh, finishing on the downbeat of a new bar. On to the fourth movement. Mm -hmm. On to the fourth movement. The fourth movement begins with a slow introduction where a new melody competes with a gloomy dramatic rhetoric. Uh, in the Pio Andante section, the horns and timpani introduce a tune that Brahms heard from an alpine shepherd. The words, high on the hill, deep in the dale, I send you a thousand greetings. Uh, the, this movement contains melodies reminiscent of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yeah. The last section, Allegro non troppo ma con brio, contains a grand melody in a major key, as the novel, Beethoven-like, main subject of the grand finale. Mm -hmm. The finale's introduction, with fragments of the ensuing allegro passing before our eyes, is more extended than the fir first movements and evolves a fearsomeness uh, bordering on terror. This dark em emotional tone is finally pierced by uh, the, the horn call um, and by a solemn chorale that speaks of uh, deliverance and peace. Then, uh, that theme begins with uh, what has been called uh, Brahms' version of Beethoven's Ode to Joy uh, from the Ninth Symphony. Uh, in its reappearance, uh, this grand melody is a source of deep, deep comfort, and in its radical transformations, a nucleus uh, for the imposing grandeur that unfolds on the way of blazing, unrestrained triumph. Woof. Symphony number one. That was a long podcast, but of course it's freaking Brahms, dude. You gotta talk for a while about Brahms. He's such a fun, wacky guy. Yeah, and like, like with um, with Berlioz, like I am. Uh, it's a little daunting to do a podcast on Brahms because you know he's like so serious and so revered that you know getting to him is like 
Oh man, here we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still funny. That's gonna be in there. <laughs> it better be. <laughs> <laughs>